Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining to the uh, the inaugural HC Insider Live podcast event hosted by Brown Brothers Harriman and HC Group. Um, my name is Paul Chapman. I'm the host of the HC Insider podcast and managing partner of HC Group, a search and talent advisory firm in the commodities markets. Um, I'll introduce the panel shortly, but first of all, we're going to have some remarks from Scott Clemens, um, Chief Investment Strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman on, on where rates are going, which is the theme of our evening, how interest rates are impacting the commodities markets. And just one bit of housekeeping, this is a recorded uh, session, so we're going to be recording the opening remarks and the panel itself, and then we'll turn the mics off for a Q&A, and then we'll retire for more drinks and networking. So, Scott, would you like to come up? Or, well, yeah. <laughs> Gotta get a better agent. Um, how many of you recognize this title of this? Okay, so we're Zachary, of course. So, a little bit of a literature lesson to start the evening. In 1953, the great English playwright Samuel Beckett published a play called Waiting for Godot, which, if you haven't seen it, you, you should set aside about two and a half hours to see it. The entirety of the play essentially is two characters, Vladimir and Estragon, and they sit on stage and they talk to each other about some matters rather banal and some matters rather lofty. But every once in a while, the dialogue between the two of them is interrupted and one says to the other, let's go. And the other one says, we can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. We don't know who, what, when, where Godot is. But at the risk of spoiling the play for you, two and a half hours later, the play ends and Godot never shows up. For a year and a half now, we have been waiting for a recession. Every economist, every investor, every talking head on CNBC or Bloomberg, wherever it is, has been talking about this. It's here, it's coming, it's here. And it's getting to the point to where I feel like a year and a half into this essentially recovery or continued recovery from the pandemic, we're still waiting for Godot, waiting for the recession to arrive. There are uh, storm clouds gathering, and I'm not going to go through each of these because you sort of know them. But if you add up potential weakness in the labor market, a lot of which now is just anecdotal, downturn in housing, a lot of which driven by higher mortgage rates, malaise in manufacturing confidence, consumer confidence levels surprisingly are at or even below where they were in the spring of 2020. Spring of 2020 was a pretty depressing era to be in anywhere in the country or the world. Leading economic indicators in a recessionary pattern, the yield curve has been inverted for close to a year now and wait as if that weren't enough. The banking turmoil that started in uh, regional banks uh, a month ago may, may lead to a credit crunch. There's not a whole lot of evidence of that yet, but it's pretty early days. So I think I look at this and have to conclude that, that if, got off, if the recession is going to show up uh, at some point later in 2023 or 2024, there are plenty of reasons for that to take place. I don't actually find that a terribly interesting forecast because it's pretty much conventional thinking. What's more interesting to me advising clients at Brown Brothers Harriman and Company on investing and on managing your businesses is if or when uh, that recession arrives, what does it look like? Because recessions come in all shapes and sizes. This is actually important for monetary policy and interest rates as well. So is it a big, long, ugly, nasty one like 08 or is it something relatively mild and short? Here I think there's actually a silver lining in that household balance sheets are in relatively good shape and household spending is 68% of GDP. This is a little counterintuitive. 
because you'll read headlines and analysis all day long about how credit card debt's at an all-time high level, mortgage debt at an all-time high level, et cetera, et cetera. That's all true. But in the same way that you would never assess the value of a company only by looking at the liability side of the balance sheet, so too with households. It's debt relative to something. It's a very long-term chart. This goes back to the Second World War. This is household debt, all debt, every, one I, every single line I could find, divided by disposable household income. And you see a rather uh, stark pattern here, a peak not coincidentally in 2008, just before the onset of the global financial crisis. And following that, not a straight line, but 15 years worth of deleveraging. Same kind of pattern, although different numbers. If you look at household debt, same numerator relative to household assets. There, that measure is back to where it was 50 years ago. So that doesn't mean that a recession is not going to happen, but it does mean there's a lot more economic shock absorbers in place should God finally arrive and we actually get a recession. So the good news is, is there's a fair amount of household strength. I think the better news as well is that because of continued improvement in inflation, we're near to the point at which the Fed can pivot or, or at least broaden its view from the monomaniacal focus on inflation towards broader economic activity. This is CPI inflation. For this crowd, I've broken it down into core in blue and then food and energy in red. The peak was last summer. We've had 10 months in a row of improvement. We're down now to about 5% inflation. That's still too high. But if you can look at the way the, the red part of this bar has narrowed down, and indeed in March, the last data point here was actually a negative impact, deflationary, probably something I don't need to tell this crowd, I think there's probably more improvement on inflation to come, a lot of which is going to come in this commodity space. And I won't dwell on this. This is a wide range of commodities prices. Um, the red bar is trailing one year, year over year, as of, as of today or yesterday when I updated this. And then the green bar is uh, the relative change to the commodities own 52-week high. Not everything points down. On the very left-hand side, eggs, orange juice, and coca. Breakfast is still pretty expensive. But pretty much everything else points downward. Now, these are wholesale prices, right? This takes a while for this to feed through into supermarket shelves. But as and when it does, I think we're going to continue to see further downward pressure on inflation. And um, the market agrees with me, which always makes me a little bit nervous when the market agrees. But when you look at break-even spreads, literally in the fixed income markets, the difference between the nominal yield on a bond, five and 10 years in this case, and the equivalent inflation-protected security, by, by definition, the difference in those two yields is the aggregate expectation of inflation. You see that the market, in its infinite wisdom, is expecting inflation, CPI inflation, over the next, it's the same number practically, over the next five to 10 years to be a little over 2%. We're at five today. We were at nine last summer. So if we continue to head down, we'll get that inflationary relief that will allow the Fed, here comes the, the, the money shot, to uh, maybe call an end to this uh, hike cycle. This is the Fed funds rate. The blue bars are historical decisions. The dates along the bottom are dates of the FOMC meetings. The red bars are the Fed funds futures for the rest of this year. Again, I did this yesterday, so it's, it's new data. And then the two green bars at the end are the Fed funds futures market for year in 24 and year in 25, so looking a little further out. So the market is anticipating that the Fed raises interest rates one more time by 25 basis points next Wednesday on May 3rd when the Fed next meets, and then is largely done. So from there, this graph kind of rolls over a little bit, anticipating that the Fed will actually have the wherewithal to begin cutting interest rates in the latter half of this year and then a little bit further into 2024, which is, of course, completely consistent with the backdrop of a relatively mild, relatively short recession. 
Importantly, and I'm going to betray my age and curmudgeonliness in saying this, the market's not anticipating interest rates, interest rates go back to zero. Good. We need interest rates. Interest rates are the most important price signaling mechanism in the market, and we haven't had them for quite some time. I get asked the question a lot from clients of the firm, what should the Fed funds rate be? How should one think about interest rates? What do, what, what do Jay Powell and his colleagues benchmark themselves to when the doors close and, and the cameras are off and they talk about what an ultimate interest rate should be? I think that's more of an art than a science, but if you look at the real Fed funds rate over time, so Fed funds minus CPI inflation, very simplistic, almost back of the envelope calculation, Fed funds rate over time, adjusted for inflation, has been about 100 basis points. And there's a standard deviation above and below that is the dotted lines. But in reality, I cannot help but look at this chart and see actually two different charts. So I'm going to show you the same chart with a break in between and a regime shift called the global financial crisis. And it's, when you look at this just graphically, I mean, it literally looks like a tectonic plate shift. And I guess in a policy sense, it kind of was. Prior to the global financial crisis, the real Fed funds rate had averaged 176 basis points. Oh, there's more to come. After the global financial crisis, so the last 15 years, the real Fed funds rate has averaged negative 165 basis points. And indeed, there have been very few periods in the past 15 years in which interest rates, in a real sense, were positive. There have been very few time periods in the past 15 years where interest rates were positive. That is a remarkable thing to say. I believe that we are on the verge, we are in the middle, of another regime shift back upward. Look at the last few data points on this graph. There's almost a V-shape to that graph, which is, of course, emergency monetary policy in the early days of the pandemic, followed by last year's very rapid reversal, exacerbated, of course, by the fact that because this is a real interest rate, you've got interest rates going up at the same time inflation is coming down. So it's an, it's an exacerbated move. Where we are right now is at about zero, negative 37 basis points. I think by the time we get to the next week, the Fed will raise interest rates another 25 basis points. We'll get more relief on inflation as the year goes on. It would not surprise me if a year from now, the real Fed funds rate looks very much like it did before the flood, before the global financial crisis. In other words, 100, 150, 200 basis points of real rates. That doesn't mean that rates have to go a lot higher. If the break-even spreads are right and we wind up with inflation settling out somewhere at, I'm not even going to be generous and say 2.5%, a 1.5% real Fed funds rate is a 4% nominal rate. That's below where we are now. So that's the kind of environment that I expect to play out. The things that I'm watching, this is my last slide, the things that I'm watching closely, that I think the Fed is watching closely, is near-term progress both on the labor market as the primary indicator of economic strength, and of course inflation as well. By serendipitous accident of the calendar, after the Fed meets next week, we actually get two more months of economic data before the Fed meets again. There's nothing malevolent in that. No one's pulling a fast one. It's just the way the calendar fell out. We will get both April and May labor and inflation reports. I think this opens the door for the Fed to actually make some comments in that direction. So in reality, the important thing next week is not so much what the Fed um, uh, does, because I think a 25 basis point increase is kind of baked into the cards, but really what they say about it. The words the Fed says are going to be more important than the numbers itself. Will the Fed claim some victory on inflation? They will never use that phrase. Will the Fed actually acknowledge growing headwinds for the economy? Will the Fed acknowledge the banking turmoil? The degree to which they do will give us some indication of how close to the end of this rate cycle they actually are. I think they're very close. With that, 
I will turn it back to Paul and let this distinguished panel poke holes in all of my arguments with <laughs> each other. So thank you. Paul, over to you. Thank you, Scott. Um, so uh, first of all, I'd like to take a moment to introduce the panel. Um, so Lewis Hart, Managing Director of Brown Brothers Harriman over their commodities and logistics offering. Dwight Anderson, CEO and founder of Osprey Management, uh, a commodities asset management firm. Mark Christoph, CEO of Traxis. Adam Rosenzweig, one half of Going and Rosenzweig, a, uh, a, a natural resources investor. And Roland Restein, uh, the partner over uh, McKinsey's risk and trading practice. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining. Um, <clears throat> well, hopefully some, some good news ahead. But uh, I guess <clears throat> we can start with you, Lewis. A year ago, uh, you know, the, the, the commodity markets were defined by incredible volatility, uh, a lack of liquidity, some real fear out there around margin calls. A very different environment to today, where we've got lower prices, and, but obviously the, the price of money has gone up. Can you just tell us, help us understand that journey and, and whether, you know, what, what that means today for commodity traders? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Paul. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, so I, th I think it's, it's really a three-part story, and we can start by rewinding back to really the first quarter of 2022, when um, we were coming out of the pandemic, inflation was intact, starting to take hold, uh, but rates were zero. As Scott mentioned, rates really stayed at zero for almost two years from the beginning of the pandemic until 2022. So you have inflation starting, and then you sort of have this massive disruption from a large geopolitical event in Europe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which in turn puts a huge amount of pressure on commodity prices to the upside and results in many of our clients and many commodity traders globally, uh, in some cases, scrambling to really raise debt capital quickly to ensure that they can stay hedged, to meet margin calls, et cetera. And I think what's a little bit underappreciated about that period, because it's been, it's been widely publicized, lots of volatility, um, obviously lots of working capital requirements that were not anticipated by these companies. But the sort of biggest, I think, surprise is that rates were at zero, right? So capital was scarce even with rates at zero. And you think about playing that forward, if you were to have another bout of volatility would it be as easy for these companies to raise capital? So if you look at where we are today, um, it would be interesting if we did a survey of this room, how many folks budgeted a 500 basis point increase in interest rates in March of 22, looking out 12 months. I'm guessing that's a small number. And even those who did budget that level of rate acceleration, I suspect not many were actually baking those capital surcharges into commercial contracts. So some may have hedged, some may have bought swaps, et cetera. But what we've seen is most traders were essentially exposed to rates rising and essentially it went directly into their margins. So when I think about today, we're in a much more, um, I would say calm before the storm kind of environment where markets are backwardated, working capital needs have reduced as flat prices have gone down. Uh, but it's sort of setting up, I think, for you know, potential volatility if we look a year ahead. Um, I think Scott made some of these points. And if we get into you know, another significant period of, of upside volatility, 
is the liquidity going to be there? It's certainly going to be more expensive. Um, and what, what does that mean for these business models? Um, so that's, that's sort of how we're, you know, we're thinking about it. And we're, while we're very, in a very stable place today, we are fretting about the next 12 months. Yeah. Well, Mark, maybe you can talk to us about preparing for a possible more volatile future. And, and, and a side question as well is, you've seen incredible consolidation in the trading houses over the last 10 years, right? I mean, and, and in this latest run-up in commodity prices, we haven't seen new trading houses arrive. I mean, is the scale really matter when you're, you're thinking about these things? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, the liquidity crisis of 2022, um, Q1, really started with a very disrupted supply chain going through COVID. So you had a very high price environment because customers restarting their plants would pay anything to have material to operate their businesses. Um, you then superimpose the LME crisis where the nickel contract uh, quadrupled in 72 hours. Traxxas, you know, a, a mid-sized company, 10.2 billion in sales last year. We have about three billion in credit lines. We had to make a $250 million margin call in two days. Um, we always operate the business with a significant amount of headroom. And coming back to your lead-in question, the only way to do that is to have a balance sheet of scale that allows you to attract enough capital and support from your banking partners. Um, it really paid off for us to have a very diverse set of bankers, over 25 bankers financing our business, various pockets of liquidity, um, so different types of structured finance vehicles available, but really you need size and scope in order to manage that type of situation, which was really unprecedented. And some of our larger peers failed to meet margin calls. So it was a very serious situation. And the LME had to shut the market because there would have been a cascading bank, a set of bankruptcies with some very, very significant players um, in trouble. So I think size matters um, very much. I think you will see continued consolidation as, as the market requires more liquid balance sheets. I think a lot of people learn some tough lessons. Um, I think your risk environment and how you manage risk is going to be front and center of er in every banker's uh, mind as they think about financing or lending uh, to their counterparties. So um, huge focus on risk, size, liquidity, headroom availability. And you have an incredible case study of last year mm. to really examine how did your, your trading companies manage the cycle. Yeah. And I want to come on to sort of some of the the investment piece, but I guess to you, Roland, you know, we are also seeing at the moment, okay, there, are, there haven't been many new trading houses, but certainly commodity producers, um, miners, majors, producers are out there, if not thinking about actively currently building out marketing and trading businesses to manage just these things that Mark's alluded to. The volatility is also an element of getting close to your customer in energy transition, um, capturing that margin. You know, is, does that, that thesis still hold up in a higher interest rate environment, or is it a catalyst to that trend? Yeah, I think, I think if we step back, what we see is we saw a doubling of the globally produced um, 
EBIT from uh, commodity trading from 2020 to 2022, the tripling from 2019 to 2022. So last year, the global sector produced about 100 billion of EBIT out of commodity trading. That per se is actually a driver um, for a lot of the organizations to think about how can we take a share of that. Um, whoever is producing commodities, whether it's um, miners or whether it's oil companies, or whoever is buying or processing large amounts of commodities is right now thinking about how to expand the trading capabilities. So that's the key driver. Now, I think the question, and I think the key driver for that, why they're thinking now differently than a few years ago is that the volatility that we see is not only short-term event-driven, um, like we had it in the past very often. Of course, we, have, we had COVID, we had the supply chain crisis, um, we have the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but underlying to that is actually the energy transition that's driving volatility for a long period of time. It brings new commodity classes into um, the trading space. Sorry for that. Um, it, it, um, it changes the nature of products you're trading. It combines um, food, energy, and material sectors. And that's basically, that's got to drive volatility for a long time. We know the supply-demand balances across all the commodities is kind of out of whack for the foreseeable future in terms of what we need for that. Now, that all is driving um, these organizations to take a share of that. Now, when we bring it back to the question around interest rate or inflation, how does that relate to it? I think. The, the, what could obviously reduce kind of or slow down for these organizations to get further into commodity trading, I think is on the one side, if the policymakers or um, the politics in general or financial uh, fiscal policy is actually overreacting and therefore kind of increasing interest rates is significantly reducing the, um, the, the growth in the sector because that will basically bring commodity prices down and that will have a significant impact for them because then their cash generation goes down and then the question is, where do you allocate your liquidity? But this is more kind of a, it's less a, um, an availability of financing, it's more a question around what do you do with your own um, capital. I think secondly, what could bring them down is like if one of these large um, activities that are kind of right now going into the sector if they actually fail or something bad happens, then others might actually get more careful. We've seen that in the past. I think that's the one side. On the flip side, what speaks for it is actually, even if commodity prices are going down uh, because of interest rates, um, what you have in the, in the um, in, you have obviously a, non, a, a very diversified income stream from trading that's volatility driven, and it's not so much flat price driven. And therefore, it can actually help these organizations to diversify kind of their, their cash generation. So, and in addition to this, in addition to this, um, when you look at latest results and when you look at kind of how the market is actually evaluating um, trading activities, these are getting increasingly bankable um, because they are repeated over time. They are more significant across the board. And ultimately, you can clearly see how they add to the return on capital employed production of these organizations. So from our perspective, whilst there might be um, an element if interest rates overshoot and commodity prices go significantly down, it will bring them, it will slow down their efforts into these activities. But beyond that, we basically see um, quite a lot of movement in that sector and believe that it's gonna continue. Yeah. But so, if, I'm, if I might touch on something, and, and you raise this point, 
separating trading businesses from operating businesses. For operating businesses, like our fabrication companies, the explosion in price matters much more to us on an operating basis exactly. than the interest rates do. Yeah. So it might change the value of our business. Okay, you know, if you're very heavily leveraged, maybe you can't refinance. But on an operating basis, when copper went from 5,000 to 10,000, our copper wire rod and tube business were having record orders, record EBITDA, record margin, and we turned business away because we had a credit line of 150 million. And all of my inventories chewed that up, and I can't actually buy any more inventory until, and so for us and our operating businesses, the working capital and the price volatility <coughs> movement is I can always put a little bit higher charge in my margin on you know, turning a tube into something else on interest rate. If the commodity prices are incredibly volatile, or especially going up, I actually have to turn business away. Okay? And so that aspect of, of, of what matters more at a certain period of time, in part depends what business you are, but even within the trading business, that aspect of you only have so much in terms of credit lines, whatever else, we can all price and do you keep inventory or not, do you do a certain marginal business or not. But the, the aspect of the commodity price and the level and the explosion of it on a daily basis is much more of a driver and an impediment than whether interest rates are 2% or 6%. Yeah. I don't know if you would agree, Mike. Yeah, listen, we pass through interest rates relatively easily to our suppliers and our customers. So we really think about availability of capital. We, we set our weighted average cost of capital at the desk level every day. We talk a lot about duration mismatch to you know, the SVB problem, and we really try to price our cost of capital um, appropriate to the duration of the contract that, that we're negotiating. Now, what we did a year ago was we were very, very um, focused on highest return on capital employed. So we did a lot more business in the more esoteric metals like lithium, um, some of the industrial minerals like floor spar and soda ash, and we turned away aluminum and copper business and zinc business because we couldn't generate appropriate comparative returns. So it's really about allocating that capital, but we always think about duration of exposure of interest rates, and we pass them on to both suppliers and customers. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Which, I mean, <clears throat> granted, Traxxas is a sophisticated business that's been in this for a long time, and you have the balance sheet, you have the tools and the people to be able to do that. But Lewis, I mean, that's not true of some of the smaller physical players in the space who haven't been able to pass Yeah, and I think the market has adjusted to this new level by now, but over the last 12 months, there's been some pain where someone put a forward contract out for delivery in 12 months. They didn't expect rates to go from zero to five. Um, that pace of acceleration was just not in their um, forecast, right? And so there are definitely cases where that was not, companies could not pass that through. I think now people have learned their lesson and um, the market has adjusted. But if you think about, um, you know, weighted average cost of capital 
to Mark's point, and that, that debt piece of your weighted average cost of capital goes from zero to five, you better be able to pass that on, right, to those clients. Otherwise, your return on equity is gonna go like this, especially if you're leveraged five to one or you know, whatever the industry average is, maybe three to five times. And so you saw, you saw certain companies last year, I think, struggle with return on capital employed. I agree with Mark, priority is do the trades that make sense and much more discipline around how these companies are allocating capital maybe shrinking volumes in some cases in order to pick the deals that have the best margins. So. Yeah. And Adam, I, I know you're an investor in the natural resources space, look at it very much from an equity standpoint. Is there anything that you're hearing here that kind of, I guess, you agree with or, or, or you're not seeing? I mean, particularly, I guess, that comment that trading businesses are now, trading returns are bankable and uh, yeah, whether you're seeing that. Yeah, so, um, and that's right, you know, we do invest uh, in the equities, mostly the listed equities of natural resource producing companies, so I have a little bit of a different uh, perspective here, and, and I think it's always fascinating to talk with the traders and, you know, understand that side of the business, which are obviously very related, but also very, very, very different. So I'm going to put forward a perspective that might be a little counterintuitive, uh, but I would just ask that everyone keep an open mind and, and sort of think of it as some food for thought. Um, you know, I think most people today, the conventional wisdom is that if we're normalizing interest rates and if we're raising interest rates, we're going to see negative impact on economic activity and ultimately on raw material demand and that if all things being equal, that's going to put a breaking effect on, on consumption and ultimately lead to lower prices. Uh, and I would argue that exactly the opposite is true. And the reason is that with all this attention focused on demand, what I think commodities at the end of the day ultimately rely upon is the supply side of the equation. And we have an industry that has now been starved of capital for the better part of 15 years. Uh, there's been no availability of capital for any of the upstream capital spending companies. Somebody at an oil company in our office the other day, and they said, what do you figure, Canadian, even worse. And they said, what do you figure our equity cost of capital is? They said, it's, it's infinite because, you know, you have companies like Pioneer could earn an 80% rate of return in the Permian Basin, and they're not drilling that incremental well. They're returning the money to shareholders. So it's not meeting their threshold for capital return. So what, what's the cost of capital for these guys? It's been effectively infinite for a long period of time. And historically, when you look back and we've gone back over 150 years and we've tried to study these big commodity cycles. And, and typically what ends up happening is the, the industry gets starved for capital, money flows out of the resources business into other parts of the economy, it tends to always be tech driven. Even going back to the 1920s, there was the view that radio was the high tech uh, of the day and all this money came out of uh, copper, came out of oil and gas and, and several other uh, primary materials that had been in uh, a lot of investment made during World War I you know, in the, in the 1920s, that all poured back out going to chase RCA. And after a period of time, depletion starts to take hold, things start to ratchet a little bit tighter, and all of a sudden you move from structural surplus into structural deficit. Now what's interesting about that period before when the money rushes out and goes into the hot thing of the day, that period tends to be associated with the low interest rates. And I think the reason for that is you have natural cyclicality, but when you have really cheap cost of capital, these speculative booms just get drawn out that much, pushed that much farther, and the money gets sucked out of our old world uh, extractive industries that much more. So in 1929, 69, and 99, and I would argue again today, all amazing times to be involved in the resource industry, shocking, even on the verge of the Great Depression, 
That was the time you wanted to buy copper stocks of all things. I mean, who would have thought that? Um, but that has typically been associated with a period of interest rate normalization, and the best days are often ahead because the capital begins to come back out of the speculative bubble area and, and begins to normalize back into our space. So, so I think that's a bit of a different perspective. It, it addresses absolutely nothing to do with trading houses, margin requirements, and I'll be the first to admit my ignorance on, on many of those um, really, really difficult intricacies of running those companies. However, uh, I, I think that we've starved this industry now of capital for, for almost a full generation, uh, and I think that that's coming to an end. And I think interest rate normalization is part of that story. But, I mean, this is a conversation that we've covered a few times on Puck. We had Edward Chancellor on talking about this, and. Jeff Curry, Dara mentioned in the Revenge of the Old Economy, and I guess to you, Dwight, I mean, the, the, we're also not necessarily seeing that capital start to return, though, right? There's other pressures in place, ESG, all this, you know, the energy transition, there's lots of difficult bets to be made and so on. I mean, I'd just like to get your take on, on, on what Adam said, being a successful investor in... <laughs> and at times unsuccessful, too. So we've had both sides of the coin at different hours. So... Um, I would say that for us, it's, it's also more segmented. We, you know, the whole commodities as an asset class. So uh, if you break the, the, the platinum group metal basket into a part, is palladium, rhodium were phenomenal for 15 to, to 20 years. And now because of a bunch of aspects in terms of demand and some aspects of supply, that portion of the basket's gonna be coming off, whereas platinum will have to carry a bit more to incent production there. So for us, it's, it's definitely much more segmented. Higher interest rates, definitely um, uh, create a greater rationalization in terms of your investment decisions. And there are structural impediments in that there is no interest rate for the coal industry. It doesn't exist. So you look at a company like Thungala, which is trading at a 90% trailing dividend yield, okay, and as a massive net cash company, and their hurdle to only buy new capacity as opposed to investing it is a two-year payback. So 50% cash on cash return using conservative assumptions. So that segment due to ESG is immune okay, to, to sort of price and capital signals. It's a question of will demand fall faster than supply? There's a lot of areas which are massively price and supply responsive even with little capital. Whether it's cobalt or lithium, they're relatively abundant. One is a processing constraint, not a material constraint really at heart. Okay? And so you get a price signal, it's an evanescent price signal because you can get a response. Whereas you take a look at something like copper, which has the single biggest structural supply area of Peru, Chile, no one's gonna make a marginal investment there given the uncertainty of local community, financial climate, whatever else. And when you have a commodity where the biggest segment is in structural decline, the rest of it has to run to catch up so much if there's growth for that segment, as we all know that there is, okay? And so at the moment, you're still in that, as, it is the one acceptable area to invest, okay, that has some real impediments to net supply growth, okay? And yes, there's gonna be thrifting. You know, we're seeing it already in the cars and whatever else, and you know, uh, we sold a division to carrier that's gonna allow them eventually to use air conditioning tubes out of aluminum and stuff. But you know, that aspect in terms of, of interest rates and investor pressure in ESG, it forces in a high grade like Mark did there, is okay, I'm gonna put my money towards copper because it's green, it's acceptable, it's got a structural story, you know, and now you get in the aspect of social impediments, okay? You know, Europe wants copper, try and do a mine there, okay? U.S., I mean, we can go through the list. So you can get brownfields and the like. 
but uh, the payout structure and also the optionality. Okay? Like I get blown away how no optionality is priced into any of these names or assets, public and private. Okay? So there's a, a, a small marketing cap company, 750 million public called Faraglobe. It'll be net cash this year. They did 820 million of EBITDA last year. They have two businesses, manganese ore processing, okay? And the biggest manganese ore processing facility in all of Europe, one and a quarter million tons, sits right across a body of water from something called Zaporizhia, okay? Which has Russians occupying it, occasionally shelling, okay? Those manganese ore processing facilities have a lot of value, okay, if that facility you know, has some issues, okay? Separately, they're, they're polysilicon, ferrosilicon, general silicon, moving upgrade. The Europeans are requiring a certain amount of European content that has to be in the solar, 40% or more in terms of that. And you have the whole aspect of when China invades Taiwan, where are you going to get your policy and silicon and everything else from? Yeah. So whether it's a crude oil company that's trading 1.8 times EV to EBITDA with net cash, okay, and does something happen in terms of crude oil and the related S&D to geopods, or these assets, the, the aspect of the pricing of existing assets tells you generally, other than a few structural areas that are green and acceptable and you can maybe move some capital to, to buy. Yeah. So you're not getting that signal or the movement due to either structural impediments or the lack of incentive. Yeah, I, th I think, just to, just to pick up on that for a minute, I think you've got the dearth of investment in the space that's been going on for 15 years. Really, the capital markets, the debt markets have been shut. You've got this geopolitical tension, which, as we learned the hard way in Europe, disrupted traditional flows from Russia to the European <coughs> consumers of some very important products like copper, nickel, aluminum. With the geopolitical tension with China, what is going to happen with the global supply chain? I think it's reversing, and we're talking about regional supply chain solutions in jurisdictions that have not been friendly for mining. If, if you know, I had told you guys a year ago the DOE was going to put a couple billion dollars to work in nickel, copper, lithium, you would have said, take this guy away. Um, so there's a big, big transition here. And this whole zero carbon goal requires extractive industries producing copper, lithium, cobalt, nickel, and there's just not enough around, particularly if you have the constraint of the geopolitical problems of not making supply available from traditional markets. Um, that's setting us up for some real volatility. And you know, I would argue that if the OEMs want to make their projections for EV production assets, they've got a real supply side problem. And that's coming. I, I want to come back to that and finish up on volatility and where we could be this time next year. Just staying on the energy transition and then keeping this thread of interest rates. You know, there's been, over the last three years, you've seen, whether it's oil majors or trading houses, a lot of pressure to fight, to make bets on, on the pathways of energy transition, whether that's things like green hydrogen and so forth. And some of these projects, and I think uh, it was Torbjorn Tornquist at the FT Commodities was saying how, how difficult these bets are. Lots of these technologies aren't proven. Um, you know, they are expensive in and of themselves and now more expensive given where interest rates are. Is this going to do, I mean, does everyone just sort of revert to the, the sort of the easy bet of copper? I mean, what do we think is going to, I mean, what's happening to those people who have put a lot of money and effort into 
green hydrogen projects that won't pay off for 30 years. I've, you know, is that landscape changing rapidly? I mean, Roland, I don't know if you want to take that on. I, I think it's an excellent question. And I think what you definitely see, and I, this goes back kind of to the S&D issues that we currently have in the markets, is that a lot of capital right now is actually um, focused more towards kind of, first of all, the, um, the energy transition-related um, commodities. But then secondly, I think there's an increasing thought also around kind of hydrocarbons again in terms of what needs to happen there. I think the, where I think there will be always a, a question mark is around specifically for trading houses, I guess, or for some of the, the shorter term investors is around um, if, I have a, if I have an asset class or if I have a technology that I invest into which I can't risk manage right now or over the next few years, obviously I take, take an outright exposure in terms of basically betting on that. And that's going to be really hard for a lot of the players. Therefore, my perspective is certainly that we will see in the short term um, a significant focus, obviously, on reinvesting into, um, into um, energy transition-related commodities, but in the commodity itself. But in parallel to this, what we also see, when we see it already, specifically when you think around um, um, you know, CCUS technologies or all kind of technologies around kind of carbon removals, that basically these prices are coming down and that will actually offer opportunities that will be more bankable and on the other side, sooner or later, or risk manageable. Mm. Mark, I know also you've got your lithium investments and so forth. I mean, yeah, listen, we, we identified cobalt as an as a asset that would be needed for energy transition back in 2015 um, because we've been supplying the lithium ion battery for 20 years. So this, this was no surprise for anybody that was in the industry. And as soon as you have the step change in volume consumption going to the EV platforms, which we supported as the Chinese developed their EV platforms, we saw this growth in lithium. Um, we bought an asset in Canada out of bankruptcy because they hit a wall. Um, you know, we paid 150 million bucks for 400 million of sunk capital with a company that we know, knew was worth $2 billion at production cost and reasonable market metrics. The lithium price went from $15,000 a ton to $80,000 a ton in a 14-month period. Um, so there, there is real, real need for these products. There are investment opportunities for the, the savvy investor that does the research and thinks about the assets and the companies like Dwight talked about. Um, so I think it's a real opportunity for us, and I think we're on the cusp of continued opportunity and volatility in the underlying metals, given the geopolitical tensions, which don't appear to be getting better. Yeah. But, I, but one thing in terms of, because people talk all the time about capital constraints and lack of supply growth, is if there aren't further material policy-driven changes, geopolitical or country, a bunch of these markets are in surplus. Nickel is in structural surplus for the next five years in material, okay? Because you've had investment in Indonesia and a breakthrough and some changes in terms of that. And so coming back to my point is, it is, in my opinion, almost metal or market specific yeah. Yeah. in terms of that. And even in nickel, obviously, the LME, you know, are the contracts relevant to the types of nickel yes. that's and needed for yeah. batteries, for example, yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Adam, <laughs> you know, as you know, with some clear thoughts on the energy transition and opportunity for investors, and perhaps you'd like to share some comments on those last two points. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we've been, uh, if anyone's followed our, our work, we've been a little bit more critical, maybe that's putting it lightly, on some of the energy transition um, 
technologies, notably wind and solar, and to some extent electric vehicles as well. And, and this goes back you know, five or six years. In our mandate and our fund, we can invest in all of the um, EV um, providers. We can invest in all of the utilities. We, you know, we have a fairly broad mandate. And we had a lot of exposure to oil and gas, but we're not an oil and gas fund. We didn't have to be there. And so we really decided to research very heavily whether or not we felt that this would be a long-term threat to, to um, traditional hydrocarbon energy. And one of the takeaways that we had was that over human history, and I'm sorry to zoom out so much, but over human history, there's been a tendency to move towards more and more and more and more efficient forms of energy that harness uh, the uh, energy return on energy invested to a greater extent. And when you look at it through that lens, and, and you can go all the way back from you know, biomass and burning wood, uh, and using uh, wood-based charcoals and wood for building materials and, and um, grains for food and fodder, to ultimately coal in Great Britain in the 17th century, and then hydrocarbons at the end of the 19th, beginning part of the 20th century, there's been this energy return on investment that's gone higher and higher and higher. And we've never been able to take on a technology that was worse than, than the one that came before it. And that's what you're asking people to do with wind and solar. And the reason is that the energy density of the, of the power source is so low. So if you look at you know, one unit of energy put into oil and gas, you get 30 units of usable energy liberated out the other side. From a density perspective, you know, just turn on your gas burners while you still can have them, and you run your hand over them. And that's a lot of power in a very small physical space. You know, even a really stiff breeze on, on a big open plane is not getting anywhere near that. And so what you have to do to harness the same amount of power and energy is you grow everything. And so now your windmills stand 200 meters tall, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that requires an inordinate amount of materials, which are very energy hungry. So when you look through all of that, we said, I don't see how we can have widespread adoption of base load power when you factor in the redundancies and the batteries of, of wind and solar. Which then raised a question, tying it back to interest rates. How on earth could the cost of these things keep coming down and down and down? Because that was the biggest pushback we got. People said, I get that. However, we've seen the cost of wind and solar fall by 70%. We're getting better at this stuff, and we will continue to get better yet. And what we actually figured out looking back and trying to attribute what drove that cost reduction is that about 75% of the cost reduction over the last decade is attributable to cheap energy and cheap capital because they're very capital intensive and they're very energy intensive. And we had negative, you know, the lowest cost of capital in 4,000 years and the lowest energy in real terms uh, in, in 100 years plus. And, and because of that, you could explain 75%. So whereas everyone was kind of tripping over themselves to say, what could the levelized cost of electricity of wind and solar get down to? We said it might actually go back up, which was really sort of controversial when we said it. And sure enough, we're starting to see the beginning parts of that. So, I think that, that carbon is a big problem. We really, really love nuclear uh, power and we love uranium uh, because of that. It has an incredibly efficient EROI and no carbon. Uh, but, but I think that, that particularly in some of the areas that are pushing for this big wind and solar uh, build out, you know, like solar in Germany is the, obviously the example that everyone likes to <laughs> kind of snicker at because um, there's no sunshine. Um, <laughs> But, but you know, I think there's going to be, as interest rates normalize and the cost of energy comes up, there's going to be huge, huge, huge uh, rethinking of some of, those, some of those policies and some of those plans. Um, somebody asked me whether I thought it would result in massive, you know, write-offs and impairments. 
that's kind of a trickier question because once this stuff is up and built, I, I don't know that you need to write it off, uh, but it does leave these companies that are in the middle part of their development where they still have to deploy new capital very much at risk. And like Commonwealth Wind offshore Massachusetts found themselves in that. And you know, six months into this new cycle, they, they you know, effectively tried to declare force majeure uh, on, their, on their power contracts. So, so I, we're a little bit more critical or, or a lot more critical. Uh, I think the material story, frankly, works without a huge renewables push. Uh, we could be wrong, uh, so we do have a lot of copper investments. I agree that nickel's an oversupply, but, uh, but I think interest rates normalizing and energy prices potentially moving higher will, be, will actually really hurt uh, wind and solar a lot. Mm. Okay, so, so last section. <clears throat> Lewis, you started off talking about the calm before the storm, and it's sort of the layman thinking here, but in, in a year's time, or whenever it is, we might, there's, there's considerable reasons to have, we might have a lot of volatility return. Uh, Taiwan, and I'll let you start with that, Dwight. But, um, you know, <clears throat> presumably, the same kind of liquidity crunch could happen again. There are more systemically fewer banks in the sector, fewer banks with the expertise, fewer banks with the mandate to lend to the hydrocarbon industry, and now prices for that money is that much higher. I guess, can you sharpen up for us, Lewis, what you meant by sort of the what, what would happen if there was a storm? And then Dwight can tell us why China's going to invade Taiwan. <laughs> is it, is... Yeah, so I was just going to add to Adam's great, great talking points there that, you know, if you, if you talk to a banker at an international institution or, or frankly, an equity investor, oftentimes the first question is, is really more about is this something that's de rigueur from an ESG perspective, not does the project make sense? So what we're seeing is more capital available for projects that may be more marginal, right? Versus can, how do we get capital to invest in the bridge between where we are today and where we need to go in the next five to 10 years? And I think that's gonna create the volatility that, that you're referencing, Paul, is we need more investments in natural gas, we need more investments in nuclear, and the capital is flowing to hydrogen and things that I think will, will work eventually but are unproven at the moment. So if we do get into you know, one of these uh, bouts of volatility in the next six to 12 months, we'll see, we'll see how quickly it comes, but the catalyst could be um, some sort of additional geopolitical conflict in Asia. It could be something else. I think the big difference is the cost of capital is now eight to 10% for these companies, not zero to 3% or 4%. And the result of that is um, there's gonna be a huge need for liquidity coming into the sector you know, to support those companies. Perhaps it comes to Roland's point from the larger producers and consumers getting into the trading business because they like the return profile um, of that part of the supply chain. But I think it will to Mark's point, I think it's likely to result in um, winners and losers with scale, uh, balance sheet size, winning out over relationships and um, specialized expertise even. Mm. So in, in a word, I think it's more consolidation at all levels of the supply chain. Roland? Yeah, I would, I would absolutely support, I would absolutely support that view. I think the, um, I mean, the, what we've seen already over the last few years happening, and specifically what we've seen last year happening, is that the strong balance sheet was actually key to actually manage the crisis. And um, we, had, um, we had a few smaller players that actually really got under trouble, 
and we had a few larger players that basically would have gotten into trouble if they hadn't kind of taken on early measures to kind of deal with it. I think the, I think for the, for the asset back players, um, it was much less of a much less of a risk, um, given obviously their kind of much lower leverage. I mean, if you look at some of the large trading houses, they got like a, a debt equity ratio of like eight. Um, if you look at like the large mining house, they got one, mm. if or, if at all. So, sorry, the the, the largest you average zero. Yeah, uh, yes. exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's why I said. Yeah. Maximum of one. So, so basically, so basically, there was less of an exposure there. On the flip side, also, you could see it in the in the um, in the revenue generation or the profit generation from trading last year. You could see that the ones that could actually leverage them are, uh, lever them up, which were the merchant traders, like the very big ones. And you've all seen the results of the largest trading houses being actually um, um, reported in the last few weeks. Um, they could actually take much more advantage of that market structure than actually the large asset back players could do because they wouldn't have access to the working capital or to the, to the banking lines. Having said that, I think you could also see that specifically the smaller players got extremely under pressure. Going forward, and we had this um, debate I think a week ago or so, I think I personally feel that the organizations themselves are much better prepared for an additional crisis in terms of their own risk management liquidity and also imagining the unimaginable. But in terms of the availability of capital, in terms of the, the pressure that's going to come very quickly onto, the, onto um, financing availability, I think that we obviously got a much worse place now than we might have been actually a few years ago. Yeah, and we've certainly seen the HC Group, the, the types of hires and the strengthening teams are doing yeah. around accessing and forecasting cash requirements. So, so I guess let's end up with Dwight and, and, and Mark. Dwight, you know, are we all being a bit complacent about how risky the future might be? Yeah, on multiple levels. You know, one of the things we struggle with is an aging world with a real shortage of available trained qualified labor, but with a massive amount of debt. Is that demand going to weaken and be more deflationary than the aspect of the inflationary aspect in the shortage of trained and qualified people? Because the majority of people in the mining industry, the crane geologists, are old and aging out and retiring. Okay? Yeah. So the aspect you come back to in terms of a view of interest rates in society is majority of decisions that have been made over the last you know, five to eight years aren't traditionally what we've done. You historically maximized productivity, lowest cost, most efficient. We've now gone in terms of the bulk for the, the traditional drive of the economy you're going on other factors, not purely lowest cost, most efficient. Okay? You're going by green and ESG and whatever else. We're now taking into account supply chain redundancy and reliability in terms of it. So the constraints you have, retiring aging labor, your investment decisions on what your power and energy source was done on multiple factors, where and how you're doing it, who you put into the roles. There's all sorts of actions that make your ability to grow as quickly and without inflation massively harder than we had in the past. Then you throw in the fact of, I have no idea what's going to be coming out of Russia or Russia, Ukraine, or whatever a year from now, to the West, whatever, okay, that I'm sure of, okay, that I give you 100% certainty. 60% of their nickel is coming from Indonesia, okay? You know, the, the aspect of concentration and geopolitical risk in terms of complacency with all the structural impediments and an interconnected world that might get disconnected. Okay? That's that aspect where I talked about there's multiple layers here of good and bad optionality and volatility around here that are possible. Yeah, and all those supply chains in this to try and seek 
security of supply are going to less efficient, more expensive, um, you know, routes, right? I mean, that's one of the, the outcomes. And because Brown Brothers charge us too much, we can't carry as much inventory. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Mark, what keeps you up at night? Well, listen, I, I have seen in the last year stuff that I never thought I would have seen um, with the Russian invasion overnight changing the framework, you know, going through two years of COVID because it started in China and we saw it early um, was incredible. Having customers that shut down for 60% of the year is, is kind of uh, unprecedented to say the least. I, I think we're dealing with a very volatile world with a lot of different um, factors working simultaneously. I'm actually excited about it because the uncertainty creates opportunities if you're ready to move and think and think about it holistically. Um, but liquidity, 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 the ability to survive the unforeseen, and that's why we go to sleep with a lot of cash in the bank and available because you never know when you're going to need it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I think we'd like to turn now to, well, well done, panel. Thank you very much. If anyone has any questions, we can field those now. Andrew. Yeah, listen, we're, we're one of the largest uranium traders uh, in the world. Um, you know, we've seen a very interesting dynamic over the last 20 years with the price deterioration really reaching levels that the marginal producers outside of Kazakhstan and Russia could no longer compete. Um, you have the cheapest mining in the world, which is in situ leaching in Kazakhstan, and they've got a production cost either side of $20 a pound. Um, the marginal cost of production is somewhere between $50 and $60 a pound in the rest of the world, um, if you don't count Russian subsidies. You don't have the surplus spent nuclear uh, materials being basically taken from weapons and turning back into energy or power availability uranium units. Um, beneficiation is a huge issue because yellow cake or UF6, U308, turn it into UF6, which is a processing, um, and then you have to put it into a fuel rod. We've lost a lot of that capacity around the world. You can do it, you know, Honeywell was doing it for years, Converdine was doing it. They shut down for four years because they couldn't compete because the Russians and the Kazakhs were so competitive. Uranium got a pulse this week because with the fear of uh, restricting um, imports from Russia into the U.S., utilities are really starting to wake up and say, wait a minute, I've been complacent. 20% of my uranium comes from this supply base. It's going to come tomorrow. And suddenly they're saying, wait a minute. So the, the market's starting to move up. Um, we're bullish on uranium. We think there's a structural problem. We think the geopolitical overlay could cause uranium to go from 50 to, to 70 or $80 a pound relatively quickly in the West if you have a restriction on the availability.
go long uranium. Um, any other questions, or should we retire? Oh, at the back. Appreciate everyone's opinions. Um, leverage and trade finance issues that popped up, you know, in the Ukraine invasion and European gas and power and things. What do you think happens if a major trade house defaults? What's what's the impact to the market? Do I? Do I? Oh, I get that luxury of that one. Okay. <laughs> um, there is uh, for well-capitalized, decent-scale companies. You know, there is still you know, credit out there today and, and available. Um, there has been a consolidation of fewer players in the space. Uh, and so events like that you know, cause you know, the major banks to immediately step back, reevaluate whom they do, reprice, put incremental cost into it. And so an event like that would further probably concentrate the industry, further raise the cost, and then force concentration, and then higher prices and higher liquidity in terms of the individual market would be my knee-jerk reaction. I don't know if you'd disagree. Yeah, listen, I, I think the, the more likely event is a large fraud like we've seen. And the question is, is it big enough to bring the counterparty down? And how much pain are the banks sharing through that uh, situation? And we've seen that in, in the oil business in Singapore. We've seen it more recently in metal, um, in nickel, uh, sourced from India. Uh, so I think you've got to really come back to the risk, the risk approach of the business, and you know how are you managing that and really focusing on it. But I think you will see, continue to see frauds if you don't have a tightened risk environment, a it's risk worth management as environment. Well, that last year's liquidity crisis, a letter did go to the ECB from the large major traders, trading houses, saying we think we pose a effectively a systemic risk. So I think that question is out there, and I'm sure there'll be some ramifications of that at some point, questioning what would happen. I mean, the question is, I guess, yeah, system, the systemic risk, if one of these major traders went over, what would that cascade financial contagion in the markets, right, given that how large they are? I, I mean, I really have to compliment the banking sector, because in the crisis when Nat gas prices were exploding, the nickel market shut down, the availability of the liquidity that was available to the right companies was instantaneous. We raised $200 million in three days on an unsecured basis, knowing that nickel could go from 100000 to $200,000 a ton. Um, so there was a great reaction by the industry at large and, and wonderful support from the banking institution. I think that helped avert a, a more significant problem. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our first HC Insider live podcast event, this time hosted by Brown Brothers Harriman. I just want to add that opinions, forecasts, and discussions represent the presenter's views as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and are not intended to be and should not be interpreted as recommendations. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find 
more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.